Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Jeffrey E. Garten. He is Dean Emeritus of the Yale School of Management, where he teaches courses on the global economy. Formerly, he was Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade in the Clinton administration and a managing director of the Blackstone Group. His new book is Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy, which is published by our friends at Harper. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. It's a real pleasure. It's an honor to have you here. And Jeffrey, first, this is a fascinating book. I'm so glad you wrote it and that you're joining me to talk about it so I could have the opportunity to read it. Now let's condense one of the most important decisions in modern history into a half hour conversation. Uh, In order to set this book up for our listeners who are unaware, I'm going to ask some questions that will likely seem uh, elementary. But first, can you explain, Jeffrey, what the gold standard is as it was tied to the U.S. dollar? Yes. um, You know, after the Second World War, the world economy was really was totally destroyed. Mm -hmm. And um, at a hotel in New Hampshire called Bretton Woods, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and and other allies um, got together and try to design the world economy for the future. And one of the things they wanted to do was to create enormous stability where there had been great uncertainty before. Hmm. And one way to do that was to say, look, the United States is by far the most important and the most powerful country now. It's the only country actually that had emerged from the second world war stronger than when it went in. And so let's let's christen the dollar as the world currency and to give everybody assurance that this was a currency worth using, um, we're gonna back it by gold. Mm-hmm. We're gonna say that $35 will buy one ounce of gold. And wherever you are in the world, if you're holding a dollar, and you have any doubts about its worth, we, the United States, will give you gold for it at that fixed rate. And this link created stability and predictability. And it was a great, um, it was a great part of the enormous recovery from the war that happened in Europe and Japan much more quickly than anybody ever thought possible. Because those areas were just flat on their backs. You know, all their industry had been destroyed. They had nothing. And within five years or so, they were back on their feet. And in addition, over the next 10 years, world trade soared. And there was prosperity in the U.S. of a kind we never had. It was a prosperity that not only did we have economic growth, but it's it spread to the middle class. We didn't have these extremes of wealth and income. Uh, And a lot of that was attributable to this one decision that if you had a dollar, you had gold. And this gave everybody an enormous amount of confidence. So that's what the dollar gold standard was. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, How does keeping gold at $35 an ounce 
work in 2021 with values constantly moving and shifting, keeping gold pinned at a specific price uh, seems like a far-fetched concept. Well, it worked for a couple of reasons. One is the U.S. had two-thirds of the world's gold. Hmm. And so we more or less controlled the price. But also in those days, there wasn't the kind of speculation there is now. We didn't have inflation. And thus, people didn't go for gold. They, they went for the dollar hmm. uh, because the dollar was much more practical. It, if you invested a dollar, you got interest. You didn't get interest on gold. Gold, gold, gold the, the soaring price of gold is typically a result of uh, the anxiety of people that the paper currency is not going to keep its value. Hmm. And so in, in those days, the U.S. did everything it could to convince everyone it's worth holding the dollar. Mm -hmm. So nobody was bidding up the price of gold. And when they occasionally they tried, the U.S. would sell a bit of gold and, and therefore uh, um, hold down its price by increasing the demand. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, let's now talk about the political uh, climate of the times when this meeting took place. Richard Nixon uh, is president. I was surprised, having not been alive at this time, to discover so many parallels between the context of Nixon's first term and Joe Biden's. Can you please set the political climate of the time for our listeners? Well, um, you know, I have to go back really to the Johnson administration, which preceded Nixon. Yes. Um, and Johnson, like uh, President Biden, was really uh, riveted on a major transformation of the world, uh, of the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very uh, um, keen to expand social programs, uh, Social Security, Medicare, and then a host of other programs for education, reduction of poverty. He called it the great society. But what happened was we were also embroiled in a war in Vietnam. And Johnson was trying to both finance the war and finance the great society. And as a result, we created too much money. We, we didn't have a tax increase. And so we were going into big deficits and inflation broke out. Mm -hmm. And so when Nixon came into office, uh, he was uh, kind of the recipient of this problem, big deficits, inflation, and a host of social problems that had increased, not because of Johnson necessarily, but just because of where the country had been. So we, were, we had, major racial problems, you know, uh, of the kind we have now, maybe, I don't want to say worse, but they were bad. We had, um, we had a huge split in between the Democratic and the Republican parties, uh, because the Republicans thought that the U.S. had gone socialist. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of echoes, really, to where we are now, but what, the, and it, what, the big problem Nixon had, or one of the really big problems, was that uh, people around the world were beginning to lose confidence in the dollar. Mm -hmm. 
they were seeing these deficits. And there was another kind of deficit which was growing, not unlike today, which was the trade deficit. And when the trade deficit grows, what it means is that a lot of dollars were going out of the country. Uh, and there were so many dollars that people were beginning to say, wait a minute, we don't need all these dollars. Um, we have too many. And secondly, with inflation, the value of each dollar we hold is less. We think we're going to take advantage of this exchange into gold. But the problem Nixon had was that we didn't have enough gold to redeem everybody's dollars. Because all through the Johnson years, we were bleeding dollars out. We were spending so much money that there were more dollars than there was gold. And just to give you an example that, you know, in the 50s, we had 160% of all the gold we needed to redeem dollars. Mm. But when Nixon came in, we were down to 10%. So Nixon was petrified that these countries would come in and say, give us the gold. We wouldn't be able to do it. It would be like a run on the bank and a default. But even more serious than the economic part, although that would have been really serious, was if we reneged on our commitment, remember, this was the height of the Cold War, we were afraid other countries would say, wait a minute, if the U.S. is reneging on its financial commitment, would they come to defend us against the Soviet Union, as they claim to be committed to do? Mm. Um, and so... Nixon was faced with this agonizing choice of what am I going to do? I don't have the gold. I have a lousy economy, which was making everybody very suspicious about our ability to not to create too many dollars and not to create a lot of inflation. So uh, he was in the bind and it is that bind really that set up my book. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeffrey. So um, we have the dollar pegged to gold and several other world currency pegged uh, currencies pegged to the dollar. Did Japan and some European countries, once they began to get back on their feet following World War II, resent the power that the U.S. dollar had over their economies? You know, um, I don't think the Japanese did because they were becoming really major traders mm -hmm. and trade was the, the, the basis of their prosperity. I mean, their exports of textiles and cars. And they associated the United States with basically being the leader and the steward of the world economy. And basically whatever the U.S. said was fine with them as long as they could continue to trade. But the Europeans began to resent it because our companies were using dollars to buy up European companies. And so the Europeans thought, hey, we're taking advantage of the situation that existed right after the war. And we're kind of using our economic power to forever dominate them. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were much more um, uh, ambiguous about whether this dollar gold standard was something that they wanted to follow. But, you know, this, this is a while back, this was 50 years ago. Mm. People of other countries were much more reluctant to challenge the US than they are today. Mm. Absolutely, thank you, Jeffrey. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back 
with Jeffrey E. Garten. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jeffrey E. Garten, author of Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy, which is published by our friends at Harper. Jeffrey, you write that back then, Americans were demanding more attention be paid to domestic issues as opposed to military and issues abroad, as you discussed earlier. Americans wanted more attention to be paid to infrastructure, social safety nets, civil rights, education. Jeffrey, if the United States was not paying attention to the educational needs of its citizens 50 years ago, and one could argue that attention is still not being paid to the educational needs of U.S. citizens today, what is the ultimate effect of that, of 50-plus years where education of the citizenry is de-emphasized in favor of these wars, none of which uh, since Vietnam have really made much sense? Well, I think it's a very important question. Um, You know, in the Nixon administration, there were people saying, um, remember, remember this is 50 years ago, they, they were saying, you know, the future is in technology. And the U.S. has been lucky up until now, up until the 1970, in that we had a great lead in technology stemming from the Second World War. But we're looking around the world, we're seeing Japan become much more interested in technology, Europe, and their governments were beginning to make investments of the kind that we weren't. Hmm. And so there was some of Nixon's advisors who were saying, it's only a matter of time before we have a huge labor problem. That is, we will be able to make what we make with far fewer workers. Hmm. And so we've got to revamp our education system in such a way that we are teaching people the skills they're going to need for a an era of advanced technology. But the the Nixon administration as a whole just didn't want to hear this because, you know, in 1971, we still were the world's leader and we weren't looking ahead. And the costs of the Vietnam War were very, very heavy. And the costs of some of Johnson's programs are very, very heavy. And we basically thought the future was going to take care of itself. In answer to your question, the bind that we're in now Um, with technology coming on stream, which I, at least I believe will take away a huge number of existing jobs, Mm -hmm. even good jobs and the educational revamp that we need, but now we need it. It's not just a question of better curriculum and advanced education. We need it at, in the bottom too. 
Um, and so uh, I think what you're seeing is the results of 50 years of, of neglect. I agree. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Um, in your book, you write that when this coronavirus pandemic is behind us uh, with widespread human and physical destruction in its wake with national debts at wartime levels, uh, that we may very well face requirements for new global financial arrangements that match in scope the extensive reforms made at Bretton Woods. What does this potential future look like to you? Well, you know, um, the heart of my book is really the decision to delink the dollar from gold mm -hmm. and to get other countries to agree to do that and really move to a new kind of financial system, which really allows currencies to float against one another. The rigidity of the dollar gold standard was good for the first 25 years after the Second World War. But after that, we needed a lot more flexibility because there was so much change in the global economy. Mm. And we were able to do it because we were so strong that in some ways we just shoved it down the throats of other countries. I mean, we had a negotiation, but you know they didn't have a lot of choice because we were not only the strongest economic power, but we were defending them militarily in the face of the Soviet Union. Uh, what I'm saying is that I think once again, we're gonna need a new kind of monetary system. Mm. And one reason is because the debts that countries have are so great, especially after COVID, because everybody's been spending a lot of money, that, uh, that this sounds very radical, but I think there's gonna to have to be a massive reduction in uh, uh, kind of an agreement to reduce debt around the world, to mm -hmm. write it off. That's gonna be very complicated. But I think in addition, the dollar, which has been so central, is going to be challenged partly by China, but actually more so by um, what's called di digital currencies. That we are going to, a, we are entering a digital age in which th there will be no cash, mm -hmm. um, and you know China and other countries are going to issue digital currencies, which would be almost from the beginning could be very global. And so nobody really knows how this is going to work, but I think we're entering an era where there's going to have to be another gigantic negotiation to 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 fix up the global monetary system. And now we don't have the outsized leverage that we did before. And what really concerns me is that I think since the Trump administration in particular, we've had a real breakdown in international cooperation. Mm -hmm. And while I think uh, President Biden wants to do a lot better, he's not having much luck. Um, and so we're entering, I think, a very complicated era with many lacking many of the political tools we used to have. Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, speaking of digital currency, how do you feel about uh, cryptocurrency that's not backed by a government? You know, these decentralized um, cryptocurrencies, do you think they have a future? You know, I think they have a future because they're really based on the notion 
they're based on an underlying technology, which is called blockchain. Mm -hmm. And in essence, a blockchain is a system of managing these currencies that is outside the government. And I think a lot of people really distrust the government um, much more than they did ever did before. And so people will put part of their money in these cryptocurrencies. I don't think they'll use the cryptocurrencies so much to buy and sell, but they may use them to invest, mm -hmm. kind of like gold used to be. Um, I, I don't see a major role for them. I think it, I'm just going to you know, uh, make a, a wild guess that 10% of financial flows might be in cryptocurrencies. But by far bigger, far bigger um, development is that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are going to issue digital currencies. And that's going to allow uh, the public to have an account with the Fed. Uh, and that means that the Fed will be uh, basically interacting with the public in a way that it never has before. And there are all kinds of implications. There are good ones in that your money is very safe. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are going to say, I don't want the government knowing exactly how I'm spending my money, what I'm saving. You know, they, I, I, it, it's too much political intrusion. Mm -hmm. So we have this coming down the road. Uh, and I don't think anybody knows exactly how it's going to work, but it's a new era. Absolutely. Thank you. Jeffrey, um, back to this meeting at Camp David and the decision to remove the American dollar from the gold standard. Uh, before 1971, again, for a few decades, you could hold a paper dollar in your hand and you knew exactly what it was worth. One thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold, period. End of story. What is a paper dollar worth now, 50 years removed from this meeting at Camp David? What is it based on? It's a great question. Um, because once you remove the metal backing, in this case, gold, but you know, if you looked at currencies for thousands of years, there was always something backing them mm -hmm. because people didn't trust governments to not to inf inflate and thereby reduce the value of the currency. And suddenly here we were at the end of 1971, it's called a fiat currency. Fiat meaning the government just said, this dollar is worth what we say it is. Hmm. And at first people said, oh my God, what are we gonna do? We, we have no confidence in this. But strangely enough, the dollar kept its value and the dollar kept its centrality. And this is why people had a lot of confidence in the US system, in our, in our laws, in our regulations, uh, and much more confidence in let's say the Federal Reserve than they did in other central banks or the SEC. Um, and the US since the Second World War has never, unless we were at war with somebody, we never pro prohibited, if you put money in the US, you could always get it out. And if you put money in the US, you had a million options you could invest in real estate. You could invest in short-term treasury bonds. You can invest in corporate bonds. You can invest in stocks. You know, there's no other country that has such a variety of possibilities and also that can accommodate such huge flows. Mm -hmm. So 
between the structure of our markets and the laws, um, it turned out that um, there was enough confidence so the dollar stayed strong and central. Um, and most of the world, you know, uh, the dollar is so preeminent, even with no metal backing, hmm. that I'm 60% of the world's savings is in dollars, hmm. and more like 70% of international trade is in dollars. So um, it surprised everybody. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeffrey. And finally, and there is so much more to talk about here. This book is timely. It is fascinating. Uh, and listeners, I think you're going to learn a lot from it. But finally, Jeffrey, do you feel like history has mischaracterized Richard Nixon because of the Watergate scandal? Or do you feel like most people who don't study politics or economics, uh, do you feel like there is a largely accurate picture of this man in 2021? Well, um, you know, I wrote about Nixon before Watergate. So Watergate was in 73, my story is in 71. Mm -hmm. And my story is really about Nixon and his top advisors and how they went about making this decision to delink the dollar from gold. Mm -hmm. And I concluded that they did the best that anybody could in a very difficult situation. Um, and some people have accused me of trying to rehabilitate Nixon, but that's not what I was trying to do. I actually think that this was, uh, he was extremely complicated person who did some really horrible things to get reelected. Mm -hmm. But he also had some really good ideas. He, in our, you know, for today he would be seen as a very moderate Republican of the kind we really don't have. Um, and he surrounded himself with some really good people who were nowhere near as political as he was. Um, so uh, I'm, I, I think the answer to your question is, anybody who takes the time to study his whole tenure mm -hmm. would have to conclude that while Watergate was really horrible, before that, he wasn't such a bad president. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. I needed to read this, I think, and I can't put it in the hands of our customers. Listeners, I've been speaking with Jeffrey E. Garton, author of Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy, which is published by our friends at Harper. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. It's a real pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Jeffrey E. Garten for joining me. Copies of Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy can be purchased at www.quailrichbooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.